1: You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. My name is Adam Sokol and I'm your host. And if this is your first time checking in, so glad to have you here. If you've been here for a while, welcome back. I'm really, really happy to have you here. Today's interview is with Martha Ann Toll. Martha has written a book called Three Muses, which is A love story but it's also a story about a holocaust survivor it's a story about trauma and identity it's a story about ballet and music and at the end of the day the three muses that she's referencing in the title are song discipline and memory it's a phenomenal book it is one that i hadn't heard of before the publisher reached out to me and wow i was just blown away i can't recommend her book highly enough Uh, We will get to her conversation in just a bit, but I do want to offer an additional book recommendation as well uh, before we get to her topic and our discussion. So the book I want to recommend today is called A Small Porch by Wendell Berry. Uh, It is actually a book of poetry, something that I don't read all that often, but Wendell Berry is one of my favorite authors, and I, I realize I don't really recommend him very much to other people uh, just because a lot of his books are agrarian. They're about nature and the world and um, his life as a, a farmer for over nine decades at this point. Um, but A Small Porch is these series of what he calls Sabbath poems. So basically every week uh, throughout his life, he walks along the just land that he owns in rural Kentucky And every year he collects a bunch of his musings and turns them into poems from those walks. So A Small Porch are the Sabbath poems that he wrote from 2014 and 2015. And Wendell Berry just has this way of talking about the world that makes you want to get outside and go for a hike or go for a walk and not only do those things, but be aware of the nature around you, you know, feel the bark of a tree, the smell of dying leaves, all of these different things. And it's the time of year, recording this on, you know, November 1st, just after Halloween, Uh, it's the time of year where I really think about these types of things. You know, I I always like to say, it's ironic, but at the end of fall, going into winter, when things are all dying around, I feel most alive. And so that is what Wendell Berry's writing reminds me of. And so A Small Porch is a lovely introduction to his nonfiction work. He's also written a number of novels that I highly recommend. But if you're looking for a gateway into Wendell Berry, I would highly recommend A Small Porch. And now I wanna get in just a moment to my conversation with Martha and Toll. Martha and I talk about classical music and her love of it and how she was brought up in a classically trained musical family. And what that entails, but specifically, she talks about a musical teacher that she had and how this world-class musician basically made music available to people who couldn't, you know, may not have otherwise been able to afford that type of phenomenal introduction. So it's a really interesting conversation about how music has affected her life in so many different ways and how it affected her writing when it came to Three Muses. If you ever need to get a hold of me, if you have thoughts on the podcast or if you would like to get some book recommendations, you can always reach me at passionsandprologs at gmail.com. I'm also on TikTok and Instagram at passionsandprologs. I like to do rare and unique book recommendations on both of those. So check those out if you'd like some more of those. And I'll give you some customized book recommendations. If you leave me a rating or review, wherever you listen to the podcast, just screenshot that, send it to me at passionsandprologs at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to send you uh, some book recommendations specifically perfect for you. Okay. That's enough of the intro. That's enough of the housekeeping. Uh, I do want to say thank you again to everyone who is listening in. It's just me doing this here by myself. So it really, really means a lot. And um, you know, if you like this episode or any others, you know, just tell a friend. It's, it helps me in ways you will never understand. Just so, so appreciative of everybody who has talked about the podcast a little bit. So, okay. That is all of my begging for attention. I am going to transition smoothly now to my conversation with Martha Ann Toll, author of Three Muses, Passions and Prologues. Okay, I am really, really excited, and uh, we actually didn't even talk about what the the answer is going to be before we start recording, which makes me really excited. So Martha, what is the thing you're super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today?
0: So Adam and I, really nice to be here, Adam. Thank you so much. And we had a chance to talk about it before the show, and I went through my list. Why didn't I do Minions or cookbook men, memoirs or all the weird things that I do? But today I'm going to talk about music, and in particular viola, which I studied very seriously, and it's um, a little bit of a nerdy niche of a nerdy field, which is classical music, so mm-hmm. that's where
1: I thought I would start. Oh, you are in a safe space to do nerdy things. Don't worry. This is a very nerdy group of listeners, and and a podcast itself. So, okay, I love this. So, this is something. This is one of my favorite things about this podcast. Is I get to try and think of questions about a thing I know nothing about. So, let's start at the beginning. Where did your kind of interest, or I guess like start at the beginning? When did you pick up the viola as the the tool of the trade that you wanted to kind of spend your life studying? How did it all start?
0: Great. So. you, you um, told me a great story about yourself that your mom was an English teacher. And, you know, I didn't have an English teacher mom. I had an editor mom, but she was really, really passionate about music. And I think it was because her parents, she wanted to study violin and her parents really discouraged her. So what transpired in my family is I am the third of four girls. And my mother had this dream of a string quartet and a string quartet is made up of two violins, a viola and a cello. And Viola, if you've never heard of it, is like a fat violin. It is strong and octopier than a cello, but you hold it under your chin, but it's it's the alto voice of the string section. It's, it's quite a bit more cumbersome to play than a violin, which is smaller. So my oldest sister started on cello, and my second sister started on violin. This was in our public school system. We had um, music instruction starting in fourth grade. And so I wanted to play flute. My mom said, no, you have to play viola because she was looking ahead to that string quartet. (laughs) So that's how I started, you know, just getting in fourth grade, you got, you got, we were really lucky. We were in a school system in suburban Philadelphia where you got an instrument you got instruction. That's how I started. I really, I would say, really fell for it when I started. I had, my mother, Got us private instruction. She was very serious about this, mm-hmm. and I stumbled into, by luck, whatever I—I I can't really say it was talent—into this absolutely spectacular viola teacher who changed my life forever when I was
1: fourteen years old. Mm-hmm. So first off, I love the idea of your mom being like, "No, we're building an internal string quartet. We don't need to. We're gonna. In, or we're gonna internally source our music from this family. That's so fantastic." But from you know when you first started, because I I have interviewed a lot of people who they, they talk about a thing they're passionate about and they're like, "Yeah, the moment I started doing it, I knew like this was a thing I was gonna love," or the moment I started watching this show, whatever it is, was this something that you? did initially at least have an interest in throughout? Because you said, you know, like, fourth grade until you got to 14. Like, that's that's a couple of years in the middle before you found, like, you met this teacher who, like, really sold you on the passion of it. Was it something you were just doing because mom was telling you to do it, or? I think I was doing it more out of obligation, but I will
0: say that um, both my parents were passionate about music and my dad, who always said he couldn't connect his brain to his hands, he did he did start piano after my mom died, so he started piano at about age 73 and and studied till he died. But um, he had a fantastic musical year, even though he could recognize anything on the radio. And he had music on in the house all the time, on the record player. And he had very eclectic tastes. So, so much of what I learned about music was just came in through the water supply, essentially. You know, you just, I just heard it when he was playing it. I didn't always have a name for it. And then he would take me and the teacher that i had before i was 14 he would drive me every sunday morning and play guess the music that was on the radio station Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of encouragement but i wouldn't say i became absolutely passionate about it till till i met this teacher
1: so what was it about this this teacher that kind of sold you to go down this path
0: well there were a bunch of things. First of all, he was an incredible character. His name was Max Aronoff. He was old enough to be my grandfather. Mm. And he had come grown up on the streets of Philadelphia, you know, a scruffy, poor Jewish family. And in, in those days, classical music was a ticket to out of, out of poverty. If you could get into orchestra, you could make a living. So he had an incredible gift of the gab. And he was um, a, a wonderful, wonderful rock hunter, and he owned a viola. I, I think he owned it. Or somebody may have donated it to him. Mm-hmm. Owned the most beautiful instrument I have ever seen before. Or since I've actually seen Stradivari, I mean, I've seen some pretty good instruments. It was this honey-colored instrument, and the scroll was a was beautifully carved, and the sound was just unbelievable. He had an incredible, incredible sound. It was honey colored molasses, thick sound.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, these like bug eyes when you start to play like get in your face. And I mean the sound was unbelievable. But also he had um, been in the first graduating class from Curtis, which is a much lesser known school than Juilliard. But mm-hmm. Curtis is really, it was always tuition free. It was started in the early 1900s. He was in the first graduating class and Curtis is still the gold standard for string, string players. And he had the first graduating class and started a string quartet, but he felt like he didn't want to only teach elite students. He was on the faculty of Curtis. So he started his own school basically for the plebs among us, you know, to, to give instruction to people because he's so, so, so few and it's still Trugan and Takardis. So mm-hmm. we were in the studio in his school.
1: I That's so interesting to me and and there's a lot of things I was thinking of. First off, the last thing you talked about how like this kind of opening up the education to to everyone, like making the access to his knowledge and his capabilities available to everyone, there is a... Uh, there's a a chef, I believe his name is Dan Juicy. And he was a former chef at the uh, like top restaurant in the world. I will think of the name in a minute here. But like, it's this place in Amsterdam and it is like a three Michelin star restaurant. And he worked there for years and years as like their head chef. And then what he did, he came back. I actually think he might be from Philadelphia or like the, the Northeastern area. And he basically said like, I have all this knowledge about food. And I'm working at a restaurant where 0.01% can access it. And so now what he does is he works with, uh, he's started a a foundation where he works with high schools and middle schools and grade schools to provide healthy and affordable meals for kids who can't afford it. Cause he's like, everyone should have access to this thing. So I, I love that, that idea of your teacher saying like, this is something that you shouldn't be, he said like, just because, I have access to a beautiful, incredible instrument. Shouldn't be the only reason I can play this. Like along those same lines, was he the type of teacher who was like welcoming and open or was he straight? Cause I feel like there's so many different types of teaching approaches and it's obviously different for everybody. Like what was the approach that he took to teaching?
0: Well, um, I definitely want to answer that. I first have to say what his studio looked like. So this was in the 70s, and it was like walking into an 1890s European salon. He had the
2: mm-hmm.
0: corner of an old brick building, and he was in the turret part. So there were bay windows all over the place. And he had photographs all over his studio of really famous musicians. And he had a story about each one, and he took me around and told me. And he was a pipe smoker. And mm-hmm. he would play, I mean, I, with this incredibly it, it, priceless instrument, play with a pipe in his mouth. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was scary to me. And I think he would occasionally get it opened up and take the ashes, you know, out of the instrument. But I think that actually it probably enhanced the sound. Mm-hmm. So he had pipe in his mouth, and, which was a meerschaum, which is a pipe that has a man's face on the... the yeah. The, I know, yeah. Um, and then the other he kept in his office was... A medical school anatomical hand, plastic hand that you could, like, lift off the top and seal the veins and the mm-hmm. ligaments and the tendons, and then you could explain why um, we call it, string players call your ring finger your third finger because you don't use your thumb to play, why it was so hard to Play with your third finger because the the tendon for the second finger crossed over. Anyway, all that stuff, and then he, he so that was the first thing. But the magic, and I really do really understand this. I don't think I totally got it. There are world-renowned musicians who can play and you know enchant an audience. It's very very rare that they mm-hmm. tangle how they play. And what he had done was kind of reverse engineer how he played how he played so he basically taught everybody how to practice and he was a taskmaster i mean he was loving but the way he was a taskmaster was he would give you these it's like bench presses or whatever you would do chin-ups whatever you would do if you're getting in shape for something else um these horrible exercises by a czech composer named otakar sevczyk that were just so boring and he would Tell you how to practice with a million different variations. When you came into your lesson, he sat there and listened to you. There's mm-hmm. no cheating. Like you got to do, you got to play the whole thing for him. Um, he did the same thing with your right arm, which is your bow arm. He had these incredibly intricate exercises. And he had a sharpened pencil and he would, he, you just couldn't get off the hook. So you really can not cheat at home because you were going to come in and do exactly what you've been doing at home for him. And that I think was the key. That he mm-hmm. he had basically deconstructed how to play which yeah. it sounds it sounds like that might not be so unusual but lots and lots of music students are trained by you're expected to figure this stuff
1: out on your own mm-hmm. and so this was quite rare I believe I so in like a similar vein I I grew up uh, I played baseball all the way through college and in a similar vein, as I was when I was younger, like my my dad, I was very fortunate. Uh, my dad, like anything that um myself or my three siblings wanted to do, my my parents were like full bore, like, yep, you know, we don't, you know, have all the money in the world, but like whatever we can do to facilitate your interest, we're going to. And so he got me private swing lessons as a baseball player when I was like, I think like 12, 13, 14 and through high school. And it's that exact same thing. Like, it's one of the reasons why I love distance running and writing so much. Like you said about like you can't cheat it, like you can't just write 50 pages. You have to sit down and write it. And it's the same thing with a baseball swing. Like you said, it's, it's not looking at a professional baseball player and saying, replicate his swing. It's looking at a professional baseball player and saying, okay, his hands start at this part of his shoulder. And when he like, when a pitch is coming, it moves, you know, like four inches back this way and his elbow goes this way. And how many times like you have to replicate that every single time. And so like you said, I would spend hours and hours on a, a tee, like literally where the ball is stationary and you can move it to wherever you want, but like you work on your swing in that exact like structured moment. And I have to imagine that's probably what you guys were doing. Like, okay, you're going to play like these three notes in succession, this specific way, because like you said, in the grander scale, it's going to eventually be a part of this, whole thing but I mean I I love that and like having a teacher and like you said I have same thing like you I didn't understand at the time where I was like why am I doing these stupid drills and then 18 months later you're like oh because it's leading to all this like was he was he someone who like when the music started playing like kind of like came to life and was like listen to the like was he like an energetic type of a guy? Oh,
0: well, He was super energetic but I think the thing the insistence um, so I have two thoughts while you're talking one is my dad I used to he, he was like you have to practice three hours a day that's it that's the minimum mm-hmm. and I realized it was pretty easy to practice three hours a day because it took so long to go through each one of these exercises <laughs> and my dad would come home from work and I usually practice in his study he was like how can you stand playing one note all day long? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but i i totally found it a zen experience i got into the zone i i loved it i loved it but i think one of the things that he did that was so critical was i mean crucial and the, meaning the word crucial was you had to make it beautiful it's like mm-hmm. i don't want to hear any scratching your tone this is everything you do here, everything you do every orchestra rehearsal, every chamber music rehearsal has to be beautiful. And if you don't start now, right now, you're wasting my time, you're wasting your time. So, mm-hmm. and he could re- reproduce that tone. I mean, his sound was so beautiful. I've never heard of violists before since he had that kind of tone. I mean, his students come out with that kind of tone and they, they're quite recognizable at this point he's he's one generation removed in other words he died in 1981 so it would be two generations but musicians also like ballet dancers trace their lineage back through their teachers to so so to, to sort of see what kind of sound they have so I mean part of it was just listening to him and if you were home and you were practicing and you got like two minutes of that sound then it was like wow it's mm-hmm. so beautiful to be in your head, like ricocheting around. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. i So obviously, we're recording this for a podcast, which is a, a an audio medium. But I can see you kind of like brightening up when you're talking about those like two minutes. You know, however much, however much time you can harness that that kind of magic. But you know, throughout like working with this teacher, and then throughout you know your your experience of spending you know years and years and hours and hours playing what is it for you about playing this music that kind of brought like what is it about it that that you have so much love for because like for me for baseball it's like all these little things create something bigger and it's like baseball is this unique chemistry of just you versus the pitcher but it's also your team and like like I said like it's all these like different things that add up to the whole and for me, it's also like the the sounds and the smells and there's always different things. But for you, what what is that magic in playing this type of music? Cause you started it because you were told to, but clearly you still have a passion for it. So I'm I'm interested where that magic is for you.
0: So um, the story from me is a bit more complicated. The first thing I'll say is, yes, it is. Uh, the viola is by and large not a solo instrument. You can't make a living, and it's not meant to be a solo instrument. There are a handful of concertos written for, but very, very few. Mm-hmm. And so the viola is always part of an orchestra an ensemble of some sort so being in an orchestra i think is not that different from being on a baseball team you are completely reliant on the people around you and they are completely reliant on you and there is this incredible magic like you know you're one person this amazing sound is coming out of you. Um, and the same for string quartet so that's a huge part of it and the second huge part of it is sort of that expression everything i know i learned in kindergarten mm-hmm. everything i learned in his studio has been indispensable for my adulthood. So he had a number of expressions which were really important. One is, you know, you're the 90%, I'm the 10%. percent you got to do the work. And Mm -hmm. still in this sort of passion for discipline, which um, we'll talk about in my novel. But he also, I still can't really figure this out, but I think it was more by action than by speech. The value of incremental learning like actually if we have a big goal you can't just meet that goal you have to take it apart Um, my husband has this great expression you know how do you eat an elephant elephant one bite at a time it's that sort of you have if you want to do the big thing you have to break it down and do the incremental parts and I found I have found that extremely useful my whole life you know I did go to law school and practice law and you know I felt like I had a means to to study that other students didn't have because I've been prepared with this how do you break it down into the component parts and obviously the same for writing a novel so those were the two biggest oh and the other thing is if you're not going to bring quality to it don't bother you know you're wasting time because you're not you're not going to get any joy out of it but you're also not going to ever improve. so those are
1: like Mm the big lessons I would say
0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America
1: NA, member FDIC. And now back to passions and prologues. And I'm curious how your passion for This particular instrument and music, how does it connect to your writing? Because that's something where, like we were talking about, you mentioned the word discipline. Like, how were you able throughout, like your teens and twenties, and because it's not, like you said, it's not just music. It's not just practicing law. It's not, you know, just being a a book reviewer and and an author interviewer for like NPR and, and doing all these different things. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how was Is there a connection between your passion for music and your passion for literature? And then like, also just like a a simpler question, how did you find time to work on writing with all of this other stuff going on?
2: Well,
0: so for me, I have to back up and say, I feel like this was a progression and Mm -hmm. I was apparently unbeknownst to me looking for my art form. You know, I started as a young child in ballet and I was not, I, I had the same love for the discipline of it um, and the beauty of it, but no talent. And what happened with viola and why I thought I had to be a professional and everything I tried is something I'm not sure I have an answer to, but I went very far in music and at some point it became quite fraught for me because mm. I started to feel my own limitations. When I got to college, I was among extremely gifted musicians. And, well, my, my viola teacher wanted me to go to conservatory, and I, I didn't want to do that because I knew I had this thing with words. And I was like, mm-hmm. I need to be able to have a regular college curriculum. But it became clearer and clearer to me that the, the I had limitations that I might not be able to overcome. And the musicians I was playing with, I, I could just tell they were better. Or I could tell I was limited, all these things. Anyway, so at some point, I realized I should not pursue this professionally. And I'm focusing on the word part of it. I went to law school. So the answer, there's multiple answers to this question. And I think a lot of writers will say this, you know, that I've been writing my whole life. I just didn't realize it. I was the mm-hmm. kid who wrote like the plays for the people that act in when we were six, you know, and I always, always read. I always kept a journal. I always kept vocabulary lists. I mean, words were very much part of the family that I grew up in and I definitely got that. So I um, and, and all the professional jobs that I had were very, very writing intensive. So I was always writing, snail mailing, all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I came to writing because um, it's a very comfortable medium for me. But my, the, my first goal when I started getting serious about fiction was to get music on the page. It was absolutely mm-hmm. the thing I most want to do. And, you know, we, it's completely impossible, of course because music doesn't lend itself to the page it's mm-hmm. a silent medium. but that I know that that is the, that's the connection. Yeah and I am very conscious of the sound of language and what I can say is having moved through a couple of different disciplines, I think writing was where I was meant to be and it just mm-hmm. took me a long time to get there.
1: right. <laughs> yeah, I- I, I had a conversation with a, a horror novelist recently named Don Kurtagich, and she writes these very terrifying books, but they're, she's like one of the most bubbly and delightful people, which I feel like always happens with like people who write scary books. They're somehow like the most kind-hearted and gentle people. But our conversation evolved into this discussion about how one of the things she and I both think are so important to storytellers, like yes, anyone can kind of come up with a story, but it's being aware of your surroundings. Like she talked about, she wrote one of her books is kind of came out of, she was going for a hike in Wales where she lives. And she saw this like cave on the side of a mountain and she just like, couldn't get out of her mind. Like what is in that cave? And so she starts building it out. And I have to imagine for someone who you spent and continue to spend so much time, like, I'm imagining when you hear music because of your experience with it, and you actually mentioned earlier about how the your teacher's instrument had like a honeycomb that's like almost like a synesthesia thing, which is actually something I talked about with uh, another author. I saw that because I also have synesthesia. So. Okay, when you said it, I was going to guess. I was like, I feel like she probably has a touch of synesthesia too. But my, I guess my, this is a long rambling way of saying like, I have to imagine for you, it strikes me as I imagine you're a very, um, you notice things, whether it's listening to music or seeing things out in the world. or Obviously, again, like being a book reviewer. Like, I, does that, I have to imagine your experience in music helps you to better notice and pick up on things that can go into stories? Or is that just me projecting something and trying to make it well, fit?
0: I think there's some truth to that. I think it's super interesting that the viol is an inside voice and like nobody's ever heard of a violist. Although, I'm going to tell you two really well-known violists. One is Jimi Hendrix, starred on viola. I want to share that. Yeah. And also Nicholson Baker. He's an mm-hmm. amazing, amazing writer. I think he has a viola degree from Eastman School of Music. I read that somewhere and I've never been able to verify it, but I, I think it's true. So those are my like groovy things. But um, when you're an inside voice, you have to be you have to be matching your sound to the people around you, to the violins mm-hmm. and the cellos that are around you. So I think that's really interesting that it's not. It, yes, I think there's a lot of connection. I also think that as a reader and as a writer, I'm much more interested in language and the sound of the language than I am a plot, and that mm-hmm. has been something of. I won't say it's a handicap, but it's it's something that it's hard for me because I never really, I don't really care about plot as mm-hmm. a writer. So sometimes people, you know, like the industry doesn't love, quote, quiet writing, whatever that means, I hate that term. And I'm completely passionate about quiet writing. So, which mm-hmm. is where, you know, the, the language is maybe takes more precedence than the characters or the plot. And now I'm trying to, you know, I, I obviously try to compensate for that Um, Mm and you need some plot there's no question (laughs) um but I really care about sound
1: yeah no I mean I tell listen I I always tell people I love small stories with big emotions like I feel like I'm the same with like I want like the the books that stay with me, the stories that stay with me are the books that it's like I I don't remember if it who was, was it like Foster Harris or something. Like, there's only like three types of stories in the world or whatever it is, and it's like happy ending, unhappy ending, tragedy or something like that. And it's like you, you know you, it's what makes up the story is like why you're you remember it. And to me, that's why I love you know kind of getting to your book Three Muses. Like that's why I loved it so much is because it it did feel like melodious and like I could I, I don't know every every line I wanted to like. I wanted to wrap it up on around me like a blanket. And so, you know, there, there is music connected to your book. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give our listeners like an introduction to three muses a little bit. And I think people, as you're describing the book, will see how this is a lot of like a combination of the different things within your life.
0: I love that. Thank you. It, just repeat that for me, small stories, big emotions. <laughs>
1: yeah, I love small stories with big emotions. That's the I thing. Love myself,
0: that. I, I, I used to describe my writing as, I, I care about love and death, which are you know, two small topics. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so Three Muses um, is framed by um, a strand of Greek mythology that I kind of stumbled over. Um, it comes from the region of Boeotia and um instead of the nine muses that we hear about maybe in when we start thinking about greek mythology there were three song discipline and memory and those three ideas frame my book discipline is particularly interesting because in this tradition it includes the concept of prayer and preparation for prayer and i think that's a very interesting and wonderful combination that there's a spiritual so the story in my book is that um A young boy, German boy named Janko, is deported to a concentration camp with his mother and brother. And his mother saves his life while they're in line for the gas chamber by telling the SS officer that he can sing. So he's pulled out of line and he survives because he sings for the commandant and officers who murdered his family. So music has become this incredibly fraught thing for him. He is loosely associated with song, but song is both the means to his survival and also the means to his you know, un- insurmountable trauma. Mm-hmm. He makes his way to New York and he falls in love with a ballerina and the irony of that is that a ballerina cannot work without music. She can't. Mm-hmm. There is no ballet without music. And the ballet, the ballerina, Yonko becomes John when he comes to America and Katya is the ballerina. She's from Queens. She was named Catherine, but her choreographer, who's essentially been grooming her to be prima ballerina, but also to be his lover, renames her Katya Simonova to give her a fancy Russian name. Mm -hmm. She is loosely associated with discipline and her life is really about, really circumscribed by the ballet. That is who she is, what she lives for, that kind of thing. And they are a, it's a love triangle, um, the relationship between Katya and her choreographer, Boris Yanukov, is completely fraught. And, um, the third muse is memory, which I think overlays the whole story. And in fact, it overlays all of our lives. And as a part of the Jewish tradition of, um, our collective memory is very important to us. We're not a people who build cathedrals. We we carry our memory forward
1: into future generations that's that's the thumbnail which wasn't
0: too much of a thumbnail
1: <laughs> no i that was perfect and so like there's th- the reason, I one of the many reasons I loved your book so much is I, I my father's side of my family is Jewish, and he's non practicing, but like we grew up with, uh, you know, we went to Passover and Yom Kippur and Shoshana and uh, and all these different things, and so yeah, like the memory aspect hit me so hard. like in my I'm a I'm a person who I think nostalgia is a healthy thing. I I hate people who say like nostalgia nostalgia is an unhealthy emotion. I'm like, why should I not? Think about the memories of my past fun. I don't know. It's a whole thing to me. It's like, no, I just love how it all wove together. And I, I don't know, I just, to me, like I said, getting to know you a little bit and, you know, researching you while reading it. And after the fact, I was like, this feels like a perfect Culmination. I always, I talk to a lot of authors sometimes like why, why this book, like, why was this the book you spent so much time on? I feel like that's probably a easy answer for you. Like, it does really feel like a combination of all of these things that matter to you.
0: I mean, that is so true. And I, um, in, in the interviews that I've been doing, I always quote Anne Enright, Anne who's a wonderful Irish writer. I heard her speak about ten years ago and she said, if you meet a debut author, their are debut books about their sixteenth. So in fact I have a full novel, which I would love someone to publish, you know, kind of shopping it around mm-hmm. about the music world. And it was it was earlier than this novel. It's an immersive novel about a viola player. It's mm-hmm. I would say it's autobiographical, but it draws more directly on my own experience. So it's interesting that that's out there. You know, I I hope to get it published. But this is a later novel, and you're right, that in some ways it it is the culmination of a lot of things that I think about. And I also think that memory is something that writers draw upon. We can't, um, and I think to your point, about big emotions I think we draw on our emotional memory it's not a literal oh okay what I'm writing is what happened to me it's not that for fiction Mm -hmm. it's more sort of how do you access the emotional memory to get it on the page
1: Mm -hmm. I I want to add because I it's not often I get to talk to people who also interview authors and (laughs) so I This is going to be completely out of left field, but that's what most of my podcast is anyways, out of left field.
0: For a baseball player.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, maybe. Exactly. Keeping with my theme of baseball, which I didn't realize I was going to have this like through line. But what is your favorite type of author to interview? Because you mentioned debut authors and I've been fortunate enough to like that. I've interviewed people. I've been the first person to interview some people who have gone on to be bestsellers. I've sat down with James Patterson. Like, so I've literally done the whole gamut and I have my own thoughts on the types of people I prov- I love interviewing, but I'm, I'm interested, like, do you have a type of author that you like to interview or like, I guess what's your favorite type of discussions to have?
0: It's really interesting. So I really like people. So I'm happy to interview anybody. The <laughs> real problems that I've had, I've been around people who are completely not forthcoming. And then I'm like, why did you want me to interview you? I mean, I think that one or two instances where the most important thing about this person was what they wouldn't talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like maybe you shouldn't have agreed to an interview. That I find incredibly frustrating when you know, a, I mean, I'm thinking of a particular example with a book that had a lot of political implications and, I, and the author wouldn't talk about it. And I think she probably felt that the book needed to speak for itself. But anyway, if if the person, if the author is forthcoming, I'm always interested. I don't care what you're talking about. I find it really, really, really interesting. And as you know better than I do, people have different writing processes. They have different ways of organizing their thoughts.
1: They have different ways of approaching their work. I, I'm game for anything. That makes sense to me. And like I don't know, there's something so interesting. I in my past life, I, I would go to like the American Library Associations, like. Midwinter conference where all the publishers bring you know like 50 authors and so my co-host and i would like tag team things but we would we would interview we would end up interviewing like seven authors in two or three days and it would literally be everyone from like like there was one day where we interviewed colson whitehead and matthew desmond who had both won the pulitzer prize that year like we interviewed them back to back and then like an hour later i interviewed an author who it was literally her first interview ever for any book and it's just so interesting to see and like you said there are i feel like there's sometimes just people that sit down with you like they know i almost like interviewing people who have like a ton of experience being interviewed and when they have that sort of like wall up and if i can find a way to ask them a question where you kind of see them like drop their shoulders and like lean in and be like oh you know what no one's ever asked me about that but there is also something magical about interviewing a debut author and like seeing them be like, oh my gosh, someone's interested in my work. Like I, I like I said, it's it's so something. Cool.
0: it's so cool. And meanwhile, I had to like comment on both Colson Whitehead and Matthew Desmond. So I love Colson Whitehead, and um I've been reading him before anybody ever heard of him. I mean, I started with The Intuitionist. I, I've been a fan forever. I, I was my daughter was working in a theater in Louisville, and I was. Visiting her and I had a 6 a.m. flight from Louisville to New York. And I get to the airport. I'm a total caffeine addict. No coffee, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing's open. And there's Colson Whitehead sitting in the lounge. I'm like, excuse me, are you calling someone? <laughs> like, that's a fangirl moment. And then I was like, I couldn't talk to him because it was so clear we were both so caffeine deprived that I, I, I just thought it was torture. Yeah. But Matthew Desmond I have a close personal relationship with because in my previous life in social justice, I spent a career working on housing and homelessness and I found him pretty early. He's incredibly extraordinary. For readers out there who have not read his book, Eviction. It's it's a must read. He's doing absolutely path breaking research and Mm -hmm. he's also drawing on his own personal experience of having been evicted as, as a young person. His work is really, really, really important. I love that you put those two together. Like my faves, you know, I don't know how you know. (laughs)
1: I, I, yeah, it was just, we were, I actually remember it was my co-host and I were in Chicago and it was, they were both um, Penguin Random House authors. And like, we were fortunate enough to have a really wonderful relationship with, and I still do with like the heads of publicity at Penguin Random House. And so they said, they're like, we have colson and matthew here literally like the next morning they were receiving their surprises and they were then they said like do you want to interview them like back to back and we have like it was in the chicago like athletic club i think is the name of the hotel it's like this gorgeous book and my co-host and i like we we were good at interviewing authors but like it wasn't you know i'm not like it's it's not it wasn't fresh air like it wasn't right. you know I'm not Terry Gross. And so we're like sitting in this room, like this huge conference room, like having this through a moment. And then Colson walks in and same thing like you like, it's one of those things where I've read everything he's written, like every word the man has written, and he walks in and he just looks at these two people at the other end of the room. He's like, hi. And we're like, yeah, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. Come here. And then but yeah, but then and then when Matthew walked in, like same thing, it was like it's, it's something, obviously his work is so important and his book is so important as well. And it's like, it's, it's, it's one thing to, I think like gush to someone who writes works of fiction, even if they're inspired by something, I think mean, it's another thing to be like, I loved your nonfiction, very serious book about a very real problem. And he's like, yeah, thanks. Absolutely. But like, he was so kind hearted and yeah, I, <laughs> apropos of nothing, but they're both wonderful people. I was
0: at a housing conference with him and he offered to do a selfie with me. I'm like,
2: thanks, Matt. I needed that. You know?
1: Oh, that's so funny. Um, oh, so I always end with having the author give a recommendation of any kind. It can be it could be a book. Lots of authors have given book recommendations. It could be um, you know, a, a piece of music that you want people to listen to. It could be a TV show. Anything that you think more people should know about. So anything you want to recommend the floor is yours
0: i want to say that i have made a spotify playlist for three muses which i have put on social media i'm brand new to spotify Um, i think i need to put it on my website so people can find it so if you want to know what is the music to the ballets in the book then you can go listen to that and then i will end with There are too many books for me to recommend because I'm a maniac about books. But the book that I wish I would have written about music, how's that? Called An Equal Music by an Indian writer named Vikram Seth. And it's just so beautifully written. I don't think that Seth is a musician. I think the wonder of the book is that he captured... The chamber music, violin, piano life so accurately. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. So that's probably what I would
1: end with. The one I wish I would have written it.
2: Yeah, no, that's perfect.
1: And I will um for everyone listening. in I will. I'll have Martha send me the the Spotify list too, and I'll put it in the show notes with uh, with everything. But I, I people will hear me talk about this in the intro and obviously throughout our conversation. But. Go read Three Muses. Your book is so wonderful. I was so, so excited to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you. It's an incredible privilege. I'm just thrilled. I'm grinning ear to ear. Thank
2: you.
1: (laughs) Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Ruhl Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell.
0: Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called